I would say the things I love about the art world is the fact that someone can have an idea in the morning and it could be a reality by the evening, right? Ooh, Very uh, few businesses or industries yeah. or things, whatever you want to categorize it, where that's true, right? Someone wakes up and they say, this is the thing I want to bring into the world. And depending on how quickly they work, it could be in the world. That's the voice of Dexter Wimberly, who's the founder and CEO of the Art World Conference, an event that's launching this month in New York. It's something he says that's going to happen every year, even twice a year, with the first event always in New York and a second in another city. They're considering Los Angeles as the first stop. He's joined by Heather Bandari, who's the project's creative director. The Art World Conference appears to be many things, from self-empowerment and financial literacy to greater awareness about the realities of making art on the ground and the challenges of, frankly, a changing landscape every year. When I first heard about the initiative, it definitely piqued my interest, so I was delighted to be asked to be a speaker at the multi-day event. So I decided we should start at the beginning, and I asked Heather to define what the conference was all about. The Art World Conference is a business and financial literacy conference for visual artists and arts professionals. It's going to be three days at the end of April, from April 25th to the 27th, Great. in Tribeca in New York City, and we're bringing together a bunch of art world leaders and interesting experts in the field. 50 to, people. It's not a couple of close friends. You're not like called no. a bunch of people and decided to do a panel. You brought together 50 people and all kinds. You have writers, curators, artists. Social media experts, all kinds of different people. People in public art, accountants, uh-huh. lawyers, yeah. all kinds of people. And I must say, I'm really excited about the accountants. You can't make a comment like that without explanation. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> Oh, well, I say I'm really excited about the accountants because I'm in the midst of one of the most complicated tax filings I've had in my life. Why is this conference important now? Well, I think the conference is important for a number of reasons. I think that the number of people, particularly you know, young artists who are saddled with a tremendous amount of student debt are finding that the opportunities for them are, are not exactly the ones that they thought would be waiting for them on the other side of graduation. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of you know more established or mid-career artists are also finding that there's this sort of contraction where a number of galleries are closing and the opportunities for representation have become a little bit thinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also think that the um, the overall sort of outlook for you know being an artist is a little bit perhaps murkier than it would have been say 20 years ago huh. and I say yeah, that to the degree point. that what's interesting about art wall conference we're not really focusing on galleries or focusing on the relationship between artists and galleries I think mm-hmm. that that's a very important discussion to be had and perhaps that's a discussion for a future conference or future mm-hmm. event but what we really wanted to focus on is self-empowerment how artists and arts professionals can use the resources that are available to them to accomplish their goals and not necessarily rely on a gallery or rely on a sort of single patron model or multiple patron model for that matter. And it's not to say that galleries don't serve a purpose because they certainly do. Collectors do, philanthropists do, museums and other institutions do. But what we're most interested in is how does an artist or an arts professional accomplish their goals using their own resources or their own network? 
Yeah, I love that you said that because it really is part of a bigger scene. So now, Heather, what do you I, think about that? I think that we acknowledge that there are many art worlds. Mm -hmm. There isn't just one. And I will also acknowledge that a lot of the people who are speaking at this conference are from a particular New York art world because we are in the New York art world and these are the people we know and we had access to. And it's also still probably the biggest node in the global art system, right? Nothing yeah. to sneeze at, right? <laughs> but I think regardless of which art world you feel most comfortable comfortable in, the information will be applicable to you because right. this is sort of basic information about financial literacy and stability and bringing together multiple sources of income. And then it's not even just about income. There are also other strategies to how you use technology and how you also just empower yourself to be able to do a lot of the I things that. that are out there. Yeah. You know, I've been trying to push people away from just thinking of galleries as the only way artists make because, you know, it's amazing. We, right. we had a class I actually was at a friend's studio this weekend and and you know a class was there visiting and their first question is how did you work with a gallery the first time and I was like are we still there like that's your first question and I think anybody who does this frequently hears that Right. Why, Heather? <laughs> because, like Dexter said, a lot of things have changed. And I do agree with him that it was less murky 20 years ago because it was clear to people that there was a path. And this path went from potentially art school to a gallery to museums to whatever. And it's not that everyone had access to that, but that was sort that was of the, the myth, path. Right? The myth, that, right? That, that myth, that's yeah. how it worked. Yeah. And now it's really muddy and it's really unclear. And there are lots of different ways you can organize your time and organize your lives and organize your studio. However, somehow this myth persists. Yeah, <laughs> and it persists it does. in art schools. And I am someone who I worked in a mixed screens gallery for 15, mm -hmm. 16 years. And whenever I was asked to be on a panel during that time, even now to this day, when I was asked to be on something, even if the content was supposed to not have anything to do with galleries, yep. the questions that I got at the end of every panel, every right. workshop, everything is about galleries. So see, there it drives you are. me nuts. It drives me nuts. So this is one of the reasons why I joined Art World Conference to, awesome. to help do this because I want... We're not explicit in our description of the conference that we're not focused on galleries. We, we don't explicitly say that. But if you start to look at the content, you'll realize that it's opening up the world to a lot yeah, of other possibilities. It's more big picture, right? It's yeah. not just about that. So now, Dexter, in terms of that, like why that myth persist? I mean, I have my own ideas. It's I feel like it's a bit of that Disney princess prince myth where you feel like someone's going to come and save you. Well, I mean, I don't think that the art world is immune to celebrity culture. Yep. And I think that when you, you know, let me back up a little bit and tell you a little funny story. And then I can answer your question Love by it. way of this Go story. So a couple of years ago, I flew into Raleigh, North Carolina for a show I was working on. And then um, the taxi cab driver or Uber driver, you know, I, I tend to try to sink into my seat after a flight. So I'm not like asked any questions <laughs> and try to disappear in the back of the cab. Right. Because, you know. Sure. So anyway, he asked me the question. That's pretty common. Like, what do you do? And I said, oh, man, am I going to give him like I have a standard sort of fake answer, which is a really boring job, like completely <laughs> and utterly boring that no one wants to talk about. Like I work in a clinic. You know? That's right. Like, it's yeah. like, sure. No problem. <laughs> Nothing to talk about there. <laughs> Um, but I said, you know what? It's a sunny day. I'm going to tell them and just tell them what I really do. And I was like, you know, I work, I'm a curator. I work with museums, et cetera, et cetera. And he kind of perked up and his 
follow-up question was so like out of left field. Um, he had asked me about, I, I forget which, what it, which artwork it was, but something had recently, oh, I, it may have been the Saison card players or something. Something that recently sold for like $250 million. Yep. And I thought, okay, this taxi driver in Raleigh, North Carolina knows about that sale. He's not an art collector, just not an art enthusiast, but somehow that cut through all the clutter and he knows about that because of the size of the sale and, and right. how it gotten picked up right. by so many right. media outlets. Yeah. And so his perspective of the art world is this crazy place where people are buying $250 million paintings. That's right. right. Or shredding Banksy's. That was the other one right. where I feel right. like exactly. everyone, everyone, like your was grandmother was texting you yeah, or like, something. What is this? Yeah. No, it's true. What, what happened there? Did you do that? <laughs> you know, that was the other thing. Your parents think you, or your grandparents think you're involved in every little thing that That's happens right. in the art world. And you know everybody. <laughs> did, did you, you do that? Everybody. You press that button? Right. And so, so with this guy, I mean, what was funny is that he asked me as if I would have like some firsthand knowledge about that actual sale. And I said, well, I, you know, I don't know. But I said, I do have a theory though. I think maybe you're asking the wrong question. Maybe the question isn't, how can a painting be worth $250 million? I said to him, well, maybe the question you should be asking yourself is how does someone have $250 million to purchase a painting? Right? Which is a better, better question. that is a great right? question. Because it basically means that that person would probably be spending like, what, 2% of their net worth on that painting, which do the math. Right. So anyway, that's a whole nother story, right? right? And so my point is, this my long-winded answer, my, my point is, is that... We love uh, this story. Keep going. We, we, we often are infatuated by the big numbers, right. the big splashy events, the big splashy things we hear about. And so artists are not immune to that. And oftentimes the people that get admired and the career paths that get admired are these that are sort of like storied situations where artist X gets with Blue Chip Gallery B and all of a sudden they're just like the biggest deal. and, and and everyone secretly admires that or despises it depending upon their perspective, right, but right. we're aware of it and it influences yeah. how we see ourselves in our own path. So I think that deep down inside, a lot of people are still sort of married to this idea of it being um, a career where you get out of grad school, you get picked up by maybe a small gallery, then a bigger gallery, then a blue chip gallery, then right. you're doing a Guggenheim show, then it's the Whitney Biennial, and then it's this, and it's this, and it's that, and then before you, you know retrospective. It, you know, and then yeah. it's a retrospective. And while that happens, and while it's actually not a, it's not an absurd goal by any means, but one must, one must, you know, appreciate the fact that there's just a finite number of galleries, a finite number yeah. of museums. But how do we break through, Dexter, to people who mm -hmm. still have that myth? Because, you know, I think about this a lot, actually, because, you know, it doesn't help us. Like, it, at least it doesn't help most of us that are not part of that. Like, this myth, you know, first there's the myth that s all of us in the art world are making so much money. Like, right. if something is successful, that's just monetary. Right. One could be successful without making a lot of money right. in this world. People seem to forget it. So why? What are we doing wrong that people are not, like, that myth isn't sort of falling by the wayside? Well, I think it's a myth that's sort of perpetuated by the art world itself. Hmm in the sense that there are certainly enough editorial outlets out there that we see online that do always highlight the big money things right. and do right. always highlight the galas, the big high profile things. Right. There's this sort of like, uh, I guess the word would be aspirational aspect to a lot of editorial. 
perfect right? word but doesn't get down to the day-to-day -day, you right. know you know and you can relate it even back to social media and instagram and that's uh for i guess for a later part of this conversation <laughs> or another conversation altogether but this idea that we're seeing an edited version of reality that's right so now heather how about you what i mean because you also teach and you also right. like work with students i mean you see front line you're front line mm -hmm. you know so where are these ideas coming from and is that what's pushing kids into art school well i think it's interesting because i've seen a huge change oh, in the last 10 years. Great. So uh, from what I've seen with students, 10 years ago, they came in, eight years ago, actually, when I started, mm -hmm. they came in with that myth in mind that, that I'm going to get a gallery, I'm going to be famous, I'm going to make money. And by the way, just as an aside, the reason that we talk about all the big money stuff in the art world is also to maintain the big money in the art world, <laughs> right? Yeah. All the people who are making the big money want those stories to get out there all the time because part of the facade, it, it is a facade that's actually making those prices what they are, right? True. That's what I think. My other theory is that because so much of the art world is not quantifiable, mm -hmm. it's one of the only things in this world that you can quantify. Right. Do you know? Because it's right. qualitative. And at the end of the day, it's whether you like it or I like it. And we can make intellectual arguments for it and all these types of things, but we really can't measure anything else. Right. We need to see measurable results for these investors and whoever to actually buy in. And this whole idea of progress, there. right? Anyway, sorry, right. back to you. Um, so they came in with these ideas about galleries, and I ended up teaching to that at the beginning, I feel like. I also published a professional practice book called mm -hmm. Artwork about 10 years ago. And in the first edition, I used the word gallery in my head that word meant a lot of different kinds of spaces. It meant commercial right. spaces and nonprofit spaces and all the spaces in between. But I realized once I published it that everyone took that as commercial spaces. Oh, and it was yeah. actually misinterpreted to a large extent. And I was actually mm. feeding into that system that I didn't want to feed right. into. Right. So a very minor but significant change that happened when I published the second edition was that I changed the word gallery to venue. So it was something that was imperceptible to most people who had read it before, but I think they read it differently. Right. And that was very, very purposeful on my part. But I also watched these students go from, you know, galleries are the only way to now actually having a very negative attitude toward galleries because it represents something that they don't want to be a part of. So I feel like mm -hmm. right now is a really interesting time for empowerment and different definitions of success. I've always talked about that. You know, everyone, like we just talked about, yeah. there, there's quantifiable and, yeah. right, and not. And what makes you a successful artist is really different from artist to artist. And it's not always about monetary reward. It's about a lot of other things. So anyway, I've seen these artists come in now and galleries are an aside. It's kind of like, oh, that's one part of this. Wow. But they're, mo well, it's that because makes most, me hopeful. Well, I'm very hopeful because a lot of them are much more interested in social practice and things like that. And they're also looking far beyond the art world, too. It's more about the content of the work they make and then which context that content makes the most sense in. Right. You know so, Dexter, as a curator, as a writer, I mean, what are you seeing? Well, I mean, my perspective is certainly aligned with Heather's, but also our experiences and how we both came into the art world and also came to collaborate with one another on this venture, sort of like different journeys. Mm -hmm. So, you know, about, wow, so long ago, uh, 20 some odd years ago, um, I was running an advertising agency and PR firm, and, and that's sort of like the beginnings of my professional life mm -hmm. in my early 20s. And so to make a long story very short, I met a lot of creative people who were interested in becoming 
becoming more self-sustained and, and mm -hmm. sort of like successful in their own definition of what success meant. And so a lot of the entrepreneurial experience that I had, I started being asked a lot of questions and sharing advice about practical things like, you know, basics like how to write an invoice, how to how to create a marketing plan, how to write a press release. You know, these are things that somehow people were graduating with advanced degrees without any knowledge of how to do these right. things. So what was one of the best decisions you made for yourself in this field? If you guys sure, are, why don't you why, I'm going to start. You know, when I first started dating Vikan, who's my current husband and the publisher of Hyperallergic, he asked me such a simple question that embarrassed me at the end of the day because I felt like I didn't know what it was. Like He's like, so do you ever want to write a book or write something you know big that other people read? I go, of course, you know, I'm a writer. He goes, well, who would read those? Mm. And I went, um, people interested in the topic? And he was like, he sat me down I, like I was a child. And he was like, that's really sweet. That's not the way the world works. Like, you know, it's just, and then he was like, maybe you should start blogging. Maybe you should start building an audience. You know, these are people, get people already interested in your work. And it, it like blew my mind because he was like, that's so right. You know, that's something I didn't even think about. It seems so simple, but he was like, no, you need to build an audience along with your work. And I was like, that's a really smart way of looking at it. And that blew my mind. Okay, Dexter, you're next. Well, sure. I mean, sort of connected to a piece of advice that I received going on at this point, could be, again, 20 some odd years ago. When I was running my agency, one of our clients tried to get out of paying for some advertising that we mm -hmm. had placed for them. And we were stuck in the middle of it. And, you know, one thing's for sure, we weren't going to pay for it, right? It wasn't right. our ads. Right. And so I had to go to the magazine that they had placed the ads in and just sort of show my face, right? Like, you know, this was at a time, I'm dating myself here, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a spry 45. So am I. You so know? I think we're all in the same. <laughs> you know, but this, but this is, you know, this is kind of like the dawn of the internet. So I thought that, you know, getting in front of the advertising director was important so that he could see, look me in my eyes as right. I think has value. And, and he could hear what we were doing to rectify the situation and not through a letter and not through an email, right. but from me in person. Right. And this is someone who was only maybe two years older than me at the time, was not a friend of mine, but someone I had mutual respect for. And he said to me, you know, after our long meeting, he said, you know, you guys are as smart as any of the big agencies and any of the big brands that we meet with on a regular basis. You know just as much as they do. And in many cases, regarding what you're an expert at, you know more. Aim higher. Oh, wow. That was 1998. Ooh, that's good. It was like 1998. That. By 1999, our entire client list had transformed into like blue chip national and internationally wow. known companies because I started to aim higher. Yeah. That's a good one. Heather, your turn. Okay, I don't have a really good story, but I'm <laughs> looking back over my career and I've made a couple of different choices. First was to not make art anymore, <laughs> but I'm not sure if that's the most pivotal one, to be honest. But I am yeah. realizing what I was good at and mm -hmm. what I wasn't. And when I moved to New York, I needed to pay my bills. So it all goes back to paying bills. So for people who yeah. don't know, you have an MFA. I have an MFA. But then you decided yeah. not to make art after that. Right. Well, I came to New York and got a studio and mm -hmm. I was making art. But I got jobs in galleries because actually my worldview was really small and I didn't really know what the options were. I right. graduated from school and I knew there were galleries and there were artists, like back to our yeah. previous discussion. So I started working. I worked at Sonnabend and Lehman Maupin Gallery. Mm -hmm. And I really respect both those galleries a lot. But I made this choice after working for Lehman Maupin for a while that I was going to take a chance on this place called Mixed Greens. 
which was entirely online in 1999. So I just dated myself as well. So 1999 online and I'm someone who doesn't really love conflict. I like doing things that other people are on board with, (laughs) or I did. I really liked having everyone on board. I really like consensus. But mixed screens was a little bit ahead of its time. So we were online at a time when putting artwork online was seen as being really, really lowbrow and really tacky and really awful. And we were ruining the art world, like absolutely. Isn't that funny how that perception? I mean, and I think we can all agree that was very prominent. Yeah. Yeah. And so I joined because I was really interested in the internet. (laughs) Sounds so old. But I was really in this wacky place called the internet and how democratizing it was. And I thought this was really exciting. And I thought, oh, I'll just work for them for maybe a year or so and just see what happens. And then I'll go back to my comfy zone where everyone already everyone already acknowledges that this is important. Right. But instead, I ended up staying for forever. And it was an uphill battle. Those first five years, it was a lot of negativity. Mm. And I think that it made me a much stronger person. Wait, and also let's hear someone... some. What was the negativity? Because I think this is also like a lot of people in this field yeah. hear that. And we have to remind them that yeah. you can't just listen to everything. So can you talk right. a little bit about that negativity? So there was, there was a core group that was really positive and there were artists who joined us right in the beginning who are doing really well these days I can right. name a few if we want to but they were really amazing and they they believed in democratizing yeah, the art why world. not sure um, Jean Shin Julianne oh, Swartz Ryan McGinnis actually wow, at the time great. who else were we working with a bunch of other people but they they were on board and I was really psyched about that But then there were all these other people that were like, ooh, that's not going to work. Oh, you're taking away the aura of the artwork. Like, how would anyone look at that? You're you're putting prices online. That's so awful. That will be the demise of the entire art world. Like, and I was like, but galleries are stores, right? And so what's the difference between selling it there and selling so, it? So what is yeah. that myth then of the gallery space? You know, I mean, I don't want to emphasize the gallery too much because right. I think we're actually trying to look past that. Right. But at the same time, you're right. They are shops, you yeah. know, but for some reason, this idea of putting prices on things and being a little right. more upfront. Well, I mean, because you're distracting people from the content of the work. You're distracting people from the art. But I don't think that's true. I think if you click a button because you want to know how much it costs, you're, you should be able to. Right, right. That's also the law. If you're selling something, you, the price should be public. Which, right? which is conveniently so. not looked at. Dexter, what do you yeah. think about that? I think a few things. I mean, I think the art world, as it relates to galleries and as it relates to a lot of other like aspects of the art world, are sort of clinging to the past. Mm-hmm. And that past has, you know, it has value. I I get that. You didn't ask me this question, but people often ask me, so what do you do besides art? And I'm like, well, you know, besides like being with my family, I spend a lot of time reading really boring autobiographical novels. Memoirs and stuff like that. that. So anyway, I spend a lot of time reading biographies and autobiographies, right? And and all sort of like historical things. And so for me, I, I think about the art world in the context of some of these biographies that I've read and and how there was this time when, you know, galleries were just, you know, there was just a playground for the rich, right? right? There wasn't this idea ever that they would be, you know, a place where someone who's just working class could walk in and, and purchase something, right? I this mean, they still of, aren't. Right, right. By and large, Most they, are, they aren't, right? And they're clinging to that past. So any effort to break that system to sort of like equal it out is going to be met with like real resistance because the money 
that is you know behind all of that doesn't want it to be democratized like that's no. completely the opposite of it and so what mixed greens was attempting to do early in the game was to you know break down those sort of like gray areas and, and make it more transparent yeah. and you know the art world has a problem with transparency and so my reason for bringing up like my boring pastime of reading these books is that i think that the whole idea of the relationship between the artist and the gallery is still trapped in that past. Mm. This idea that the gallery is run by, you know, wealthy individuals who will sort of like wine and dine the collectors, take care of the artists and nurture them and grow them, earn their 50%, pay the artists rent, pay for supplies. You know, that sort of like weird old world that doesn't exist anymore. People are still sort of psychologically still like- Sounds clinging, more like a sugar daddy. Clinging to that idea. <laughs> Right. When the reality is that, you know, many galleries are right on the edge, just like a lot of artists are on the edge of their financial edge. Right. right. Yeah. Um, but again, I know we're spending a lot of time on the galleries, but this also bleeds into other aspects of the art world. Right. It bleeds so, into how nonprofits function. Yeah. As well. So let's talk about that a little bit. Talk about nonprofits. Let's talk about some of these other the funding structures. So in addition to my background working in the art world, when I left that world, I've worked at a number of nonprofits. Right. One of the more significant was I. CI, Independent Curators yep. International, you know, great time there. I was there for uh, a couple of years or so. They do great and, work. Um, yeah, and, and I love those guys and I love what they do. But it also gave me access to like meeting a lot of other people who worked in the nonprofit mm -hmm. world. And one of the things I realized, it was sort of like a similar thing across the board around the country, was that a lot of these nonprofits were all sort of like vying for the same donors, you know, the same money yeah. pools. And at some point, you start to run out of places that you can ask for like funding from. And, mm -hmm. and I always thought that that was sort of strange coming from a sort of like a for-profit corporate background that for me to, you know, see how these nonprofits were all sort of like going after these donors, but also that's also an old model as well, right? Right. And I just think there's a limit to how many nonprofits can flourish under that model. So I think like earned income models are really important. Mm. Um, and figuring out other ways to fund your projects are really, really important rather than just waiting on the wealthy individual or the wealthy foundation to yeah. literally give you money. That's right. So what are some of those models then uh, you'd like, you know, people to start thinking about? I have my own ideas, but I'd love to hear yours. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think what, what companies like Kickstarter and a few others have done with crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, rather, I think that while it's nothing new, mm -hmm. I think that that really changed the way people thought about raising money and they yep. realized, you know, and that's also spilled into the political world where it's like, get enough $5 donations and you can, you know, you can fund a campaign, that's right? That's right. Yeah. Certainly you could launch a, a, an art project, right? Yep. So I think crowdfunding is a really important model that nonprofits are looking at. I also think that actually selling things that aren't art, Right. You know, um, it's also something to look at. I mean, there are a lot of services and products that people need. And I don't see any reason why a nonprofit shouldn't be able to sort of do that in a way Absolutely. where, you know, that makes sense. I mean, for example, we know that there are a lot of clothing companies out there that, you know, kind of try to play this game of being both like, you know, I don't even need to name brands, but there are a lot of companies that always will tell you, if you buy this product, we give XYZ to something mm -hmm. else, right? I mean, some of those things are real and some of them are kind of like, I yeah. guess the best word would be fugazi, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I do believe that nonprofits need to think about functioning a little bit more similar, not the, not in their mission, but in terms of their revenue generating, more like, like for-profit companies. Yeah. Heather? 
But I'd also add that nonprofits also need to look to their own communities a little Mm -hmm. more and and value their communities and the people who are outside that 200 collectors that buy everything, the 25 foundations that fund everything. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, when you're democratizing that, there are a whole lot of people out there who might be really interested in art, but always felt like they were outsiders. And trying to pull those people in, the ones who are actually genuinely interested in having more individual donations, it just makes it makes it so much more flexible. Anyone who's written a grant before and has to do the reporting after a grant knows yep. that there are a lot of strings attached to a lot of that money and reaching out to people who don't have as many strings but really believe in what you do. It's it's yep. a it's a mindset change because Again, in the nonprofit world, there's this path that goes to those specific foundations and those specific donors. And it's hard to open up your mind to know that there are lots of people out there who are not those people who are just as interested and valuable. But inviting Mm -hmm. them in is the hard part. Like, how do you actually invite them? Because they're not going to come without an invitation. Yeah, and I think most really successful nonprofits and any arts organizations builds their audience along with everything else. Do you know? Mm -hmm. I think they really build and educate their audiences in different ways. I mean, that's definitely the way I like to think of with hyperallergic. You have to educate the audience and bring them along with you, Mm -hmm. or else you're just going to keep repeating the same things over and over and over again. So now, Heather, who are you excited about from the conference? Like, what are the conversations that you're most excited about right now? That's like asking me who's my favorite kid. Yeah, well, yes, you can do do that. No, you don't have to pick just one. Okay, but you can at least give us a little bit of a taste. There is one about economic sustainability that I'm really excited about that Lisa Kim is going to moderate and then on the second day there are lots of little sessions that you can choose from and I can't go to all of them but honestly I think the thing I need most in my life that I'm super excited to pop in on is attorney Jessica Lee is going to talk about negotiation oh great I'm very excited for that and there's also a session that I'm very excited about too with Melissa Levin and Siobhan Nichols Ortiz from the Joan Mitchell Foundation talking about legacy planning. And I think they, Joan Mitchell Foundation has done so much work for so long in that space. So I'm curious to see how they present that information to a big audience. That's great. Dexter, your turn. What are you most excited about personally, as well as just in general for other people to hear? This has been a lot of work. I mean, Heather Heather and I have... (laughs) I mean, you it's know, epic. Um, the lineup is and epic. I got to give a shout out to um, Trish Janakis, our web designer, graphic designer. Man, I put her through her paces. This has been like a labor of love. <laughs> it certainly hasn't been a labor of income. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. But, you know, I think that I'm looking forward to, we're doing a party on the evening of the 25th, but I'm looking forward to the morning of the 26th and looking out into that audience and seeing everyone that attends that's ready for us to deliver on our promise because you know it's no easy thing to pull an event like this together and i also know for a lot of people it's no easy thing to pull together the money to attend such an event yeah so we have a responsibility to everyone that's attending and a responsibility to our presenters i mean shout out to all of them i mean i could you know like heather like you don't want to single people out i'll single a few people out sure you know i I think like for example dina hagag I'm sure Dina's asked to do a lot. And we asked her to do this and she was on board. You know, we have to explain what it is, of course. But she was, you know, so on board. And when we asked her, we didn't have a full schedule to share with her. You know, we didn't have 50 presenters. 
We didn't even have a tiny <laughs> schedule to share with her. And she was she believed in what we were going to do. And I believe that we've honored the faith that she had in this project by pulling together the great people, including yourself, to present alongside her at the event. You know, I, I just think that we have an opportunity here, mm-hmm. and I'm excited to see us bring that opportunity to life. We have an opportunity to change the way artists and arts professionals interact with one another, interact with the art world, yes. and the way that they see themselves. This is uh, music to my ears. So we're talking about a 19th century model. We're kind of battling against Dexter. Is that right? Would you characterize yeah. it that way? Absolutely. And now, what is it going to take to really change people's thinking? Is it we just want to be taken care of? Is that like the weirder psychological? Logical underpinnings of all this? Well, every everything changes, right? That's the thing about life that we are aware of. We're aware of it from like a practical sense, but we kind of fight it from a spiritual sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're, we know, I mean, you look, things change. So, so the conference is an opportunity to look at all of these different systems and models and sort of evaluate what works for you, what may not work for you, how you can sort of have a different perspective on what you're doing to make yourself more productive, either in your studio or outside of your studio, mm-hmm. and how you can build your career or build your network in a way that you may not have considered before. I would say the things I love about the art world is the fact that someone can have an idea in the morning and it could be a reality by the evening, right? Ooh, Very uh, few businesses or industries yeah. or things, whatever you want to categorize it, where that's true, right? Someone wakes up and they say, this is the thing I want to bring into the world. And depending on how quickly they work, it could be in the world. Someone had posted this on Instagram, a lot of plugs here. I'm sure he had just grabbed it or maybe seen it somewhere. And the comment on his Instagram was like, art has saved my life on more than one occasion or something mm. like that. While it might seem, you know, a bit romantic for me to say that, that's absolutely true for me, you know? My entire life changed when I decided that I wanted to focus on working with artists. Mm -hmm. Well, Heather and Dexter, anything else to add that you think people need to know about the Art World Conference? Yes. So one thing um, that I want to share is that the conference is an annual event. So this is the first one, but we'll be doing this, you know... um, Every spring in New York City, that's the plan. Fantastic. And we'll do a second city in the, each fall. We're already in the early stages of planning our first LA event, which takes place in October. I don't have enough details to share right now. Mm. But we recognize that a conference of this nature has to travel. Yes. We don't expect people to always come to New York or any city for that matter. We need to go where the artists are and where where the need is for this information. So we don't take it for granted that someone can just buy a plane ticket from wherever Mm -hmm. to come here. And one thing I appreciate, and I think some people have maybe are a little surprised by it, but I appreciate that people are paying to be there, you know, because I think so much part of this patrician attitude we have in the art world comes from this idea that everything should be free. And I think if as professionals, we put our money where our mouth is, we invest in sort of those networks we wanna build and believe in, and I think that's really important. I think we see it as we're we're investing in each other and ourselves and hopefully setting a standard that people will value themselves also moving forward. We can't ask everyone to do everything for free for always. Like right. it happens every once in a That's while. Right. But really, we need to change the system and the way that we're all valued, arts workers and artists alike. So we're really we're really excited for this. We're really excited for the transparency, too. We've told a lot of the speakers, all the speakers, that we want this to be actionable, honest talk mm-hmm. and honest advice and actionable steps that people can take when they leave. So we're hoping that this is a very generative, exciting time for everyone involved. 
This episode, we're featuring My Love is Like a Satellite by Providence-based band Strawberry Generation. Check them out on Spotify, Apple Music, Facebook, and Instagram. They're currently working on their first full-length album, which they plan to release later in the year. They're also getting ready to tour for the first time this summer, playing at the Indie Tracks Festival in the UK. A special thanks to them for setting the mood to this episode with their music. I'm Harag Vartanian, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. Spinning round and round And I feel like I'm out of time